0: Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology podcast. Uh, I am Jared.
1: I'm Nick. I'm Dante.
0: And uh, we're back to do part two of the Sufism and Anarchism Exploration. Uh, if you're just uh, kind of catching up with us, we are trying to explore whether or not if, if there is spirituality – if there is a way to fit spirituality within anarchist philosophy and practice. And so we did a two-episode series on Taoism, which seems a little bit more popular uh, to try and synthesize into anarchism. But um, due to my own like you know, heritage and background, I wanted to explore a little bit of Sufism as well because um, sometimes Sufism has historically been associated with anti-establishment. So that's where we're at. The prior episode focused mostly – go back and check it out. It focused mostly on just Sufism in general, like what is it, what it's about. We went through, of course, some of the poetry of some of the most famous Sufi uh, practitioners like Rumi Hafez, Omar Khayyam, who's not really a Sufi, but neither here nor there. It was more of an abstract understanding of this kind of mystical belief system. This episode right now, we're going to be discussing – now, if if what we discussed – In the prior episode can be applied within the modern understanding of anarchist philosophy and practice today. Is there room for Sufism or really any spirituality? If we kind of go back to Taoism, um, in anarchist practice, or is the practice of spirituality, uh, somehow associated with, um, statecraft or state establishment or some sort of overarching hierarchy? That's really the question we're seeking to answer today. So, um, Without further ado, let's kind of kick this thing off. I want to introduce – there's not a lot of as as much scholarly research on potential anarchism and Sufism uh, connectivity as there was with Taoism. Um, but we are going to be focusing on a couple. One of the ones, um, that a lot of people end up citing because it's, it it was kind of a watershed, I guess, exploration back in May of 2000, was written by Patricia Crone, um, for the Oxford Journal. And it's called "Ninth Century Muslim Anarchists. I didn't include this when I was giving my history lesson in the last episode. I just, because we were focusing mostly on Sufism and, um, Uh, Professor Krohn doesn't. She doesn't. She's focusing on other types of Muslim anarchists. But I still want to focus on some concepts that she uh, brings forth in her study. Um, And one of the things that she kind of kicks things off with is this discussion of anarchism being more of a western philosophy to begin with she asserts that that it and she traces some of its roots back to uh, ancient greece with stoicism some roman philosophers even some middle Age philosophers she really focuses on this notion and really only cites eastern quote unquote um attempts at maybe even abstract anarchist thought to the two two spiritualities we're discussing in our podcast taoism first and then maybe a little bit of Sufism um, in the Islamic world. I want to stop for a minute and kind of get Dante and Nick rolling here. Um, What are your thoughts on this idea that anarchism, she doesn't say it, but is being kind of gatekept in a way by the West? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Uh, Yeah, this is one of the most, I think, compelling discussions that she has in this article is basically that the roots of at least an anarchist way of thinking are far before what we like, you know, like the 1800 anarchists that are really credited with founding anarchism, like the Proudhon's and Bakunin and et cetera. She argues that it, the, the roots of this way of thinking, they would obviously didn't call themselves anarchists and we might, we'll see, I guess, call them, might not call them anarchists either. But at least this idea that sort of, you know, statelessness and anti-authoritarianism, et cetera kind of is long before that I think that's really a compelling argument that she makes
1: yeah I, I totally agree I, I think I think the fact that like we have this idea that like um it is it spawned out of a western I- ideals is kind of like not true because even though people like like Nick said might not have called it that it the the philosophy or like the sentiments were still there that can lead to like anti-state um rhetoric.
2: Yeah, I just want to take this a moment to plug, uh, an essay by David Graeber here. It's called, I think I remember the title correctly. It's called There Never Was a West. And he talks specifically about democracy, I think, in that article and how the Western narrative is that the West basically invented democracy, which is absolute nonsense. But the crux of it is that even the idea that there is something that's quote unquote known as the West is absolutely absurd and that just that narrative itself is so destructive and subjugating to so many narratives. Uh, so we'll link that in the show notes, like uh, outside of anarchism and Sufism, et cetera. Just that article, I think, is worth reading just in general. It's super good.
0: Straight up. And if you've been following our podcast for a little while, when we started this kind of revolution in our ideology and exploration of statelessness, one of the first things we started with was this idea of even pre-state societies, which all predate like any sort of organization in in, in what we would call Europe or the Western world. We're talking about indigenous societies here in the Americas. We're talking about indigenous societies in sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia. All of these groups uh, under numerous definitions would qualify as stateless, and I don't know if that makes them anarchist. They would not use that terminology, but statelessness really is the goal, and that's where the crossover with anarchy really comes to fruition, um, and it's not just statelessness in that regard. It's how they organize themselves, as Nick was just talking about, Graeber found like there were crucial democratic principles, more democratic principles in many of those institutions or nations than there are in our current representative republics so it's 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 important that we note that we're not picking on Patricia Crone here in her article she'll actually kind of also make this discussion she'll make the argument in fact I can just kind of help her make that argument right now that Many of the ninth century Muslims that tended towards anarchy that she discovered um actually kind of pointed back to their more tribal roots dating back to uh the the Jahaliya or the time before the prophet, where there was this 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 kind of like it's not like the wild West it was actually organized but not organized by like written law and constant hierarchy, it was basically these these groups that would come together and there would be reciprocity, there would be communalism. If leadership needed to take hold for certain things, whether that would be trade or conflict or whatever, that would be a thing that did happen, but it wasn't like always absolute and it wasn't coercive. So many of even these 9th century Muslims that she kind of cites trace their origins back to these pre-state societies and their philosophies therein.
2: I think it's also key that we talk about this in the perspective, Sort of like a materialist or a structuralist perspective, where clearly the type of anarchism that we now know from the 19th century anarchists could have only come out of the 19th century. Like, if we're looking back to whatever period we're going back in history and expecting to see the anarchist ideals that Bakunin had, that's never going to happen. Like, the anti-authoritarianism and anti-statism is, if there is any, that's coming out of this period could have only come out of that period and it's a reflection of the material circumstances that existed in that period, very clearly. Yeah, right. And I, I just want to say real quick off of that, because I, I like what you said about
1: that. And it's just like, I think, like, in this, like, westernized, like, matrix, so to speak, that we have created, it kind of, of anarchism, especially, it kind of, uh, uh, ignores, like, the cosmological and ontological, like, epistemologies of, like, people, or in, in another way, like, the mystical way of living of people who, before the 1900s, who did have that sort of anti-state, anti-authoritative, uh, coercive, uh, ideals, uh, as like, We, we, that, that doesn't belong in anarchism because of whatever reason. Because, you know, of Western ideology.
0: Yeah, it's all arbitrary, right? Like, and we manufacture our own, and you use this word, epistemology, in this regard. Oh yeah, that was so well said. And, and the West, continuing to take credit for shit other people have been doing for so long, is a Western tradition. Mm -hmm. That is colonial, that is imperial, that is the foundation of Western civilization, is to take other people's shit, co-opt it, and claim it as your own. Always been happening. I, even in her article, this is one of the quotes. Differently put, if one thinks of an intellectual tradition as a box of conceptual tools with which every generation tries to carve some sense out of the world, the Western tradition has always had a tool labeled, does God nature really want us to have rulers? I like what she says here, but then again, kind of championing the West a little bit here. Really, is the West the only only society that's ever really asked that question if she's dating some of her study back to the Greeks and Romans? I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that. Yeah. Regardless, let's stop picking on her for a second here and this whole like kind of celebration of Western philosophy. I just want
2: to say, like, we don't even have to highly doubt that. Like, it's been proven that people did. Like, um, James Scott, uh, The Art of Not Being Governed, right? He, it's an extensive work in... The fact that these people were anti-state and actively fought against being enclosed by the state. I mean, shit, some of them are still actively fighting against this. So for us to say, like, well, it, no one ever asked this question until, like, the West asked this question. That's absolute nonsense. Like, we know that's nonsense.
0: But she does pose a good question. This is the question I want to focus on from that quote. Does God, nature, really want us to have rulers? And so let's – we'll get enough critique of like Western versus Eastern versus really really any other type of philosophy and who had had things first because we could get sidetracked all day with this discussion. But to get back on track – does God slash nature really want us to have rulers? And this is where she does an excellent job, let's give her due credit, of talking about just in regular traditional Islam, and I think she's focusing mostly on Sunni Islam, but that's okay, how it might even tie into some regular, traditional Islamic thought, which we didn't focus on in the last episode. We focused mostly on the Sufi. Um, But she has an interesting quote here regarding governance within Islam. This is; these are her words. She says nothing is wrong with coercive institutions as long as they are properly used. That was the basic position of early Islamic thinkers. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Uh, so this is when we get into the complexities of this argument because I, going into this, I had a bunch of mixed feelings because my like knee jerk reaction was like can Islam be in any way anarchist? And my knee-jerk reaction was, absolutely not. Then when we went through the sort of intricacies of Sufism, things got a little more gray. And then when, obviously, we we all read all of these articles, it just reveals how complex this seemingly simple question actually is. And so, yeah, it's complicated, is the answer. Yeah, I
1: I, I would 100% agree. However, I would even take, I would take, A slightly different perspective i would say islam absolutely cannot be considered anarchist because of the nature of the coercive nature of it Mm -hmm. and the dogmatic nature of it i feel like that's that's kind of like not anarchist but sufi is sufism the like the spiritual aspect of it possibly i think we can talk about that more Mm -hmm. so i
0: guess and that's the question before we even go any further but with with what uh crone here has to say Islam, Christianity, Judaism. The three Abrahamic traditions all share a same backstory. All slight deviations on the other, although practitioners of each of each one of them would, you know, vociferously say, Mine is this thing and mine is this thing. And but again, if you're I say this in class all the time, if you're like an alien, like watching humanity's development from like the moon or something, and you see these these Abrahamic traditions all basically start from the same premise and basically believe the same thing in this same God, and they just have different interpretations of whose whose prophets were correct and whose were incorrect and who died for who. You'd be like, oh, what are they killing each other over? They basically all believe in the same thing. They have the same origin story, and they're literally killing each other for thousands of years over minor, extremely minor deviations. Mm -hmm. The reason I bring that up is I guess that's the question. Can, if we do explore this whole spirituality beyond Sufism – I don't know that we will. I'm not promising any future episodes. But if we do, is there any version of of Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, all three of those, extremely – tied to state craft that could be considered an anarchist.
2: Well, it's was funny because when you were researching this, you texted me about I, Christian yeah. anarchism it, it, and my <laughs> response was literally like laugh out loud. You're like, no dude, seriously Google <laughs> this shit. So I did. And, like, yeah, there are Christian anarchists out there, like, doing work that I was astonished that somehow they've reconciled these things.
0: But but if you go into, like, some of the – especially the Gnostic Gospels – god, we're getting sidetracked here – but some of the Gnostic Gospels, you could argue those are very anti-authoritarian. Those interpretations of what Jesus of Nazareth was saying were so anti-authoritarian. But where – so I want to go back to Dante's point
2: because I still firmly agree with this even after all these complexities of these arguments is any faith – that requires the believer to subsume themselves to the higher power, whatever mm-hmm. that is, I believe does not jive with anarchism. Word. Like there's arguments to be made either way, but like that's my personal stance on that. And and the reason why I feel like I, the
1: reason why I feel that way and is because of the fact that it's not consensual, right? It's not a consensual relationship between uh, a spirit, like, the religion and the person, cool. I feel like with spirituality mm-hmm. is
0: more of a consensual like relationship, and I feel like that's that's the most important part we 're about, about to get that. into that okay, but before we do here's some other things this is this is again back to Crone and specific to Islam. Uh, she had this to say, ideal government, and she's interpreting, like, her understanding of the Quran, the hadiths, and th- those types of things. Ideal government was government by an imam, a communal leader who modeled himself on God's laws, and who thus sat, set an example to be imitated. The first imam in human history was Adam. The first imam in Islamic history was Muhammad. Peace be upon him. The imams after him adopted the title of Khalif, and their position was therefore known, uh, therefore, thereafter known as the imam which uh, stressed its legitimate nature and now as the Khalifa which stressed its political reality but they were all rulers of the same kind everything else was a corruption in two opposite directions and so right there the argument is clearly presented that there is governance, there is law, there is hierarchy, that hierarchy is communally accepted perhaps not supposed to be coercive but it is still there
2: yeah this is where we get into nuances right because I even have I made a note to myself on this because even though I like I believe what I just said that any rel- religious faith that has like a supreme leader that you must bow down to can't be anarchist at the same time can you do that and have it be voluntary right because like the egoist anarchist would say right there is no power except the ego and even the collectivist anarchist would say Right. You must subjugate yourselves to the collective and you do that voluntarily. So, of course, if someone who was sitting here taking the other side of my position would say, well, I can still be anarchist. And in this case, uh Muslim, because I voluntarily give up my power to God or whoever it might be, given the example. So I don't know what.
0: So are we talking about like governance? Right. Is that is that the. the... So. So. Yeah. In that last quote, she went from, of course, the word of, word of God being passed down, the perfect yeah. word of God and then being formed into the Quran and then the prophet himself and then the imame and the khalifa, the caliphate and all that other, that stuff that comes from it is established, but was meant to be, a, it is governance. It is governance, political, spiritual governance, but it is, but I mean, it is, it's the, it is what it is. Okay.
1: So what I would say to that and I, I, I might be wrong and I, I will, I hope y'all <laughs> correct me if, if I'm wrong, but is the state and the government two different things? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because is the state, the way I'm trying to rationalize this is a state is meant to impose rules and regulations onto people to follow no matter what. And the government is a collection of people coming together and making up the rules for themselves. So to say that i would say that if the purpose was to reach out to everybody to create like a government that we have collectively um put together to m- make rules for ourselves that's okay i in my opinion because it's more is a voluntary uh uh consensus based collection of how you structure yourself
0: So she goes on to say that Islam is different from other religions for other religious communities have kings who enslave their subjects, but the prophet was not a king nor were his successors. And if an imam were to turn into a king by ceasing to govern in accordance with the law, then Muslims would be legally obliged to fight him and depose him. But civil war was indeed terrible. It split the community and led to more violation of the law without guaranteeing a better outcome. Since imams kept turning into kings, the best solution was not to set them up in the first place.
2: So I have another quote, which I think – I haven't. yeah, I wrote it on the board even. Um, is appealing to the divine authority – above all else in this case above the state is absolutely anti-statist that's for sure so in that regard it is anarchist however it's not anti-authoritarian because it's appealing to the divine authority
0: okay well and see with that this is the one i kind of really wanted to focus on this quote from uh from this reading from crone's reading these other These are not Sufi. I must stress this. We're not talking about Sufi yet. That is not what Crone is studying. She is studying other versions of Islamic potential anarchists. She is not studying the Sufi, which is who we really want to kind of focus on. But anyway, what she does say is that in her studies, especially in the ninth and 10th century that she's looking at, that many of the anarchists would see that their rulers or their imams or their religious leaders, their successors to the messenger of God, would eventually become kings, begin to abuse their power, begin to abuse their governance become uh, too much of an authority, and when people did rise up against them, they had very anarchist tendencies while still appealing to the authority of God, but it was that appeal to the authority of God that they would use to remove these people that corrupted God's word. What she calls them, and this is the specific term, is regretful anarchists. They're anarchists, but they don't want to be. What are your thoughts on that? Mm. They're anarchist because God compels them to be. Well, then I would argue they're not
2: anarchist. Yeah. That's a that's, <laughs> that's a different debate, I think. That's my opinion on it.
0: Yeah,
1: I, 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 I think I would take that same point because if you're if, – if God is telling you to do something, then how can you say that you're
2: anti-authoritarian anti-author, – if God is your authoritarian, I mean like, it's like logically impossible for someone to coerce you into being an anarchist, <laughs> neither they nor you are an anarchist if that's what's happening.
0: She goes on to say, but not but as regretful anarchists, not one of them condemned the state on principle, and so that might just back what you're saying they're they're condemning the state for its practice, but not the state as it exists mm, got it mm-hmm. But does that still make them anti-government,
2: anti-statist? They're anti-that state. They're not anti-all states, apparently. Which I think is a fundamental belief of anarchism, but.
0: Hmm. There's another interesting thought here as we kind of close out this exploration of crone so we can actually get to the Sufi mysticism here. Um, she says, uh, an- the anarchists during the time period she's studying, again, the ninth to, the t- ninth to tenth century, were people who, uh, believed concluded that excuse me let me restart that the anarchist concluded that when people are forced to rely on themselves they discover talents they did not know they had people should wake up the so-called shepherd would resume oppression as soon as he recovered his strength he did in fact recover his strength so that was the end of that the only part of that that i really enjoyed was this idea that when exploring even if you did it regretfully when exploring this idea of statelessness or that specific state and then becoming um, self-reliant there's less dependency that you 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 find something new in yourself that could be seen as a gateway drug to potential what you guys might call more legitimized anarchy what are your thoughts on that that maybe maybe if you start this way just as the regretful anarchist you Mm -hmm. just hate that state you begin to realize well maybe i don't need any other state maybe this is a gateway what are your thoughts it's like a type of prefiguration right maybe like you're
2: just by going through the motion, being forced to be an anarchist, you might actually become one. Like, is that that like, kind of the argument? You know, it sounds ridiculous, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. What do you think, Dante? I I think that like, I think that
1: being uh subjected to an authority probably um makes like going through the motions of and seeing like how messed up stuff is. Makes people realize an anarchist ideology. um I don't necessarily think that it, it can be
2: like. I mean, this is like, this is what she's saying for sure, but it's yeah. almost like an accelerationist anarchism, right? Yeah, like, yeah. let's just make the most oppressive and ridiculous state
0: possible, <laughs> and that will birth so many anarchists, right? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. We're going to switch studies here, and we're going to learn from Alnur Lada. Um, and the article is Mystical Anarchism, A Journey to the Borderlands of Freedom. And this explores more of the Sufi take on or potential crossover with anarchism. Um, and then we'll kind of come back and see if we can reconcile all of them in, in a later study. But I, I I really like this one. There are a couple of interesting uh, interesting notes that I want to kind of reference to kind of get us started in, in Lada's uh, uh, article here. Uh, the first one, this is a quote. It was not my love for Trotsky or Proudhon or Sankara that radicalized me. This is like a personal reflection by Lada. Even if I had read fragments, I couldn't fully understand them in my state of pre-consciousness. It was, in fact, the influence of my mother's spiritual values that seeded my initial morality. The influence of her brand of Sufism, the mystical branch of Islam, Self-cultivated within me, even though I explicitly rejected Islam from a young age, I started to adopt some of its principles as the basis for my own spiritual journey, both rejecting and accepting its tenets at my discretion while incorporating other modalities, including Buddhism, Taoism, uh, Ayurveda, and shamanism. The reason I like that quote is because this talks about, like, Nick brought up egoist anarchism, and what we're getting here is more of a self-reflective rather than fully-blown academic like study on... Sufism, perhaps being able to work its way into anarchist thinking and 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 Lata here gives us the personal their personal journey in that regard, choosing what they accept and reject within these various teachings on their own, but Sufism still providing this almost like absolute morality as to why they're making these selections in their belief,
2: yeah, I mean they're talking about this foundation that they have as a result of basically their mother's spirituality, even though they've abandoned it, I think they say at a young age, it's basically what's guiding their picking and choosing from different spiritual belief systems and philosophies. Uh, so I don't know. I don't really know what to do with that statement. I don't know if that really gives credence to the fact that Sufism can relate to anarchism in some way or not. I don't know.
0: But perhaps more so than what we were just talking about with various traditional and traditional is in air quotes because there's multiple different interpretations of what traditional islam is but regardless more so than perhaps traditionalist islam because sufism as we discovered in the last episode where we went through those mystics and what they were writing intentionally deviated it was individual it was a little i mean what do you think dante
1: yeah no i i would say i would say yes uh that um, when you tie, uh, spirituality with anarchism, I feel like it's more of an individualistic type of anarchy, um, that people have to go through. But also to acknowledge the fact that that's okay because I feel like anarchism isn't, um, meant to be, I, I feel like a one size fits all type of thing. Um, that I think anarchism should be able to, um, adopt in ways that accept certain cosmologies or like mystical ways of thinking as long as it is still tied to like an anarchist philosophy.
2: Yeah. I think it has to be any philosophy has to be able to willing, has to be able to mold itself to external realities of the time and the internal realities within the person that's exploring it. And both of those things are constantly changing right, all the time.
0: There to move forward. Uh Lara goes on to say uh when spot, when when speaking about anarchism in their interpretation the highest values in anarchism are the simultaneous upholding of freedom and equality the traditional right values freedom over all else um or at least they value the rhetoric of freedom and the traditional left values equality over freedom but for anarchists both of both of these conditions must apply True freedom is equality of choice and equality of opportunity for everyone to thrive in his or her own way. The reason Lada is framing it this way is because they're setting up their argument to perhaps synthesize this this mysticism with anarchism. And, and as we learned when we were talking about some of the more traditional Sufi beliefs in the last episode, that freedom and then freedom of choice and opportunity and egalitarianism are all built into some of these Sufi tenets just as they are in anarchism thoughts no i fully agree i yeah. don't have anything to add to that one the two other tenets of anarchism that spiritual that have spiritual corollaries are disintermediation and consciousness. Anarchists don't require the mediation of the state, feudal lords, popes, imams, ayatollahs, sun gods, or any other arbitrary source of ordained power. No gods, no masters, as the famous dictum goes. Anarchists also believe in the conscious individual as the unit of free societies. This requires sovereign women and men who understand the structure of power, consent to rules they themselves have legitimized and consciously choose to live within their own communities according to their shared principles and values again right now it's focused on anarchism in general but there is this is previewing where there might be sufist corollaries
2: yeah there's a lot to unpack in that Uh, like the no gods no masters thing right so i have that i made a note of that too and like if we're going to agree which is debatable that anarchism must hold to this no gods no masters dictum that they speak of then no religion can possibly qualify. That's now we can debate that, or we could debate whether or not no gods, no masters is uh requisite of anarchism. But if that's going to be held as foundational, then in my opinion, no religion can qualify. Yeah. Clearly.
1: Yeah, which is why I think she say in the thing was like you no uh belief to like what uh the imams or the, the, the sun gods or anything like that. Like, it's kind of like you can't have a higher authority in charge of you in order to be an a- anarchist. So. Right. Okay.
0: And many of the Sufi that we read from, again, the Rumis, the Hafezes, um, we didn't read from Sadi, but yes, they would also agree. They were anti-authoritarian in their own ways. There's a quote here that I really like that I accidentally skipped over, but I want to come back to it. And I think it ties some of this stuff together. This fundamental, this fundamental belief in the dignity of the human soul, the desire for collective liberation, the intuitive understanding of a shared consciousness, and the faith in a human creativity greater than any of any one individual are in many ways all recognitions of a greater source in each of us. And the source is in air quotes. They're being careful here not to say like a God, Allah, Yahweh, Zeus, whatever in that regard. So a little bit like we discovered when we talked about Taoism, it doesn't, this bigger essence, whatever this essence is, oftentimes in Sufism doesn't have to be deemed or named as the Tao would say, as we kind of cross over in all of these spiritualities, but it can just be a, a generalized something bigger. What do you think? Well, and they use the term elsewhere in this article,
2: mystical anarchism, which I think is their main sort of point. That I think those two things can fit together. This like bigger essence of humanity or whatever, and sort of the the, the mystical aspects of spirituality that may not involve a specific god or a specific authority that's
0: above and beyond like human beings, right?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Well, and that mysticism is 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 echoed in this what is mysticism and why does it elicit such derisive reaction for scientific materialists the very word signifies an unacceptable negative quote-unquote unknowledge at its simplest level mysticism is the belief that our material reality goes beyond the observable phenomena around us it recognizes that the world "...of three dimensions and five senses is limited to exactly those uh, confines. We can therefore never truly understand all the complexities of the universe with our rational minds... Holy shit, that's fire for me, because I, I make this argument all of the time. Um, you know, we'll piss off people that are religious. We also piss off like scientists all the time, like in our classes or when we're talking to people, because like all of them, all of them are ideological and all of them seek subordination to a single way of thinking and knowing. Science included, and what this quote reveals is that mysticism opens a door. And now I'm kind of quoting Rumi, like opening a door. Like that's part of what we see here. There is no way that all of our scientific research um, or our five senses can know everything. The observable is not everything. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I want to read the next sentence because I – next two, I think. I highlighted
2: those and that go, gets even more into what we're talking about. So they say, quote, this does not mean that mysticism denies science. In fact, the opposite is true. As a mystic, I view all of the world's scientific knowledge as the minimal level of our understanding. It is the floor of our collective knowledge as opposed to the ceiling, end quote. So they're arguing that we don't ignore science, that we take science as the very beginning foundation of our knowledge, and then we build from there, and we acknowledge that there are things that science cannot understand. And like you said, like I think that's fire, and I have no... I don't even disagree with
0: that. Yeah, if you're wondering why we're kind of focusing on this idea of what is mysticism and and shitting on science for just a second, not like really shitting on it, but saying it's not everything, it's because traditional Western, as we talked about a, a few minutes ago, Western anarchists are all historical materialists for the most part. I guess I don't want to lump them, stereotype them all, but most of them stem from some sort of Marxian historical materialism and what... This writer here is saying uh, – Lada is saying is that that can't always be the case. That is inherently limiting and in that case, anarchists themselves are limiting their ability to understand even their own way of thinking, speaking, and acting. Well, I also you know? want to add that like like you said, I don't to all
2: anarchists together, but the vast majority of anarchist philosophy celebrates rationality and reason above all else. And so they're here – the author of this article is opening the door to add something else in there to say, like, hey, maybe that's a mistake. We should understand that uh, rationality and reason and science, the term that they use, cannot explain everything in the world. And there's there might be something else that we should be considering and we should open ourselves up to that. And that will, uh, I think, give even more weight to sort of anarchist philosophy. Mm hmm. Yeah, I agree. It one, I, I highlighted all that stuff that y'all said,
1: but I also highlighted another thing. It was like, um, everything we learn from the scientific realm further enhances and deepens the magical aspect of the universe. And I love that because I feel like it, nobody's rejecting, like, well, I'm—I should say, I'm not rejecting science, nor am I rejecting like mystical mysticism i I want yes. to use both of those things to
0: gain a deeper understanding of what's around me, and
1: I feel like that's important
0: so and that ties back to not just Sufism but just again traditionals plural versions of Islam as well is Islam's golden age was also one of the golden ages in human history of like scientific and mathematical and astronomical uh discovery and many of the arguments that were being made during this time period in the middle ages at least in the Islamic world is that they were seeking to know more about science and mathematics and mathematics and all of these other medicine etc so that they could better celebrate God's creation and the reason I'm making that statement right now because it contrasts so wholly to the western world quote unquote where the catholic church was uh burning and Suppressing any sort of academic inquiry and discovery because it might challenge the existence of God and get people questioning. So, in that specific regard, we actually can say Islam, even traditional, has a little bit of a connectivity to this part of the argument. Does that make sense? So, um, anyway, that, that's super interesting. And based on what we're talking about here, so we don't get sidetracked forever, but I, I, I definitely, Nick, what do you think? You do an episode on positivism? I think we, I think we're doing that coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So that's coming up. For those of you that don't know, that is the, the, that will kind of challenge this very ultra empirical evidence, scientific framing of the world that we have all been socialized and conditioned and believing in because that is also a product of state. So, and that's where this mysticism really can also help us challenge the idea of state.
2: I think that's actually a super good point that you just glossed over is that the state requires some level of science and positivism, at least in modern times, for it to do what it does, for is it for it to create its own subjects. That without that, it would either crumble or at the very least not be not be nearly as powerful. And I think that anarchists could probably do well to explore some of those things ways to deconstruct the state, ways to think about authority uh, and so on that are not informed by science and reason and rationality.
0: Uh, Nick, I'm going to go to you on this next one because it looked like you took a little bit more from this section of the article than I did when Lada here, our author, critiques capitalism within the framework of this anarchist mysticism.
2: So I actually just highlighted one quote here that I love that relates to a whole theory about capitalism that I have, not as if I made it up, but so I'll just read that. And, uh, they're talking about I'm trying to look back to, I don't know what this author's name is, Dieter. Dieter Doom. Dieter Doom. Mm-hmm. Okay. As Dieter Doom reminds us, behind the material consumption of our society stands the indescribable anguish of billions of our fellow beings. It stands behind the menus of our restaurants, the doctors prescriptions, and the numbers on the stock market. The well-being of one side is achieved through the systematic murder on the other. Countless human beings and animals pay with their lives for our daily intake. The reason I highlighted that is because um, I like to tell my students, uh, I don't know when this comes up in conversation because I don't lecture on this, but, oh, it's when we talk about like nonviolence, right? And we have students all the time like, well, I'm a pacifist or I don't believe in violence. And my response always is, that is absolutely false. You may think in your mind that you don't believe in like you yourself perpetrating violence, like your hands being violent against another person. But just getting in your car, just having that purse, just having this computer, just having your telephone requires so much violence for that to get in your hands that not a single person that lives in our society can count themselves as That That is impossible. I like that.
1: I, I like that a lot. The reason why that that, that uh, kind of struck a chord to me is because I just did a presentation in my English class about um, the perceptions of anarchism in American society and how like uh, the news or just like political figures or like movies or whatever um, paint anarchism as violent and gives the narrative that we shouldn't be violent or that like violence isn't a thing, right? Um and when I when I like was trying to explain how everybody is violent, people were giving me the ugliest looks. Like,
2: who the fuck do you think you are?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> people, the whole narrative about what is violence Let and what em. isn't violence and like what's legitimized violence and what isn't, et cetera, is so crafted to make us all into, I'll use for code, docile bodies, mm-hmm. like a hundred percent
0: sheep. Yeah, sheep in these classrooms. Okay. Um. You also kind of focused heavily, as I'm noting in your notes, on the neoliberal arguments. Although I don't know if you want to spend any time on those, I didn't think they were there was anything special because we've we've gone through so much research that just critiques the hell out of neoliberalism and it does it very well. A lot of does it well too, but like
2: it's the same thing as the other one. I don't know if it's pertinent to this conversation right now. I just like the way that they framed some of this stuff.
0: So that that's kind of why I wanted to just skip ahead to this part where Lada writes, on solutions, and this uh, I think all of us kind of maybe touched when we were going through our notes, looked at, and this is one of my favorite parts. On solutions, this is what Lada has to say, uh, reconciling uh, mysticism with anarchism while challenging a capitalist slash neoliberal world. So what must be done? Depending on one's ideology, we are given three types of answers, or more accurately, three levels of answers. The traditional answer of the left, especially Marxists, has been to change the superstructure, the generative rules that create our material conditions. The second has been suggested by anarchists, communitarians, libertarians, and ironically, by many institutional religions that believe we should focus on the community level. They ask, how do we create the support structures for those around us? And then the last level has often been suggested by spiritual teachers and mystics who have simply said, go within. All you have control over is yourself, and since the entire universe is within you, that is the primary unit of change. So... Nick and I can ramble on about this from our Resistance and Revolution courses and and study all the different uh, philosophers from Theta Scotchpaw to Michael White and all of the different ways that they think you can actually make social change or revolution – But for this purpose, we're kind of focusing on what, and I will quote Micah here on this, Micah White, subjectivist revolution, the going within, the focusing in on revolutionizing the way you frame the world, the way you frame yourself as the first step, because that's what ties in best with Sufism rather than more structural or voluntarist strategies. What are your thoughts?
2: I mean, I'll play, I'll just counteract that even though I don't disagree. The argument against that is, If you're looking within yourselves in, like, an empty room in isolation, the argument is you will never see real progress. That the internal gazing must take place as part of praxis with other people. That's the counter to that, which I don't necessarily disagree with. And, like, Bookchin fillets this out in his book, What Lifestyle and Social Anarchism, The Unbridual Chasm, I think. I might have flipped those words around, but... um, I think that's the main argument that I don't necessarily disagree with. And that's not to say that at times it's not valuable to look within yourselves inside of an empty room. Like, in fact, that's probably required, but if that's all you're doing, then we're never going to change the world. I think.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, like, I had, I had an issue with that myself. Um, cause I, I would consider myself at this. Well, well, I, I would consider myself like, uh, a, uh, person who looks within themselves to try to, find out what I can do to like help out and um and I feel like in order for people to like have this this revolutionary like uh mindset um you have to change your thoughts before I feel like you've change the material world um so but there has to be a a, a, a praxis like Nick said you have to do you have to do what you feel in your mind out in the world to see the, uh the results you want to see
2: It's like, I don't know, I hear off on this forever, but are you familiar with, like, the thought experiment of, like, philosophical zombies? Mm -mm. How, like, it's this thought experiment within the philosophy of consciousness that, like, how do we know that other people have the same consciousness as as us? Because if there was this philosophical zombie that basically could act 100% like a human being but was just like a zombie or a machine, you would have no way of knowing whether or not they were conscious or not this just made me think of something like a radical zombie. Like maybe you are internally like super radical, but if you never interact with other people, how would anyone possibly know that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No idea. Yeah. Nor would, nor, I guess I would argue you probably couldn't be really radical if you never interacted with another human being. Like what would that mean? Right. <laughs> right you have really yeah. radical thoughts, but like, I don't know. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So I have an interesting quote here. This one I will credit Elif Shafak from her work, The 40 Rules of Love. And this is her rule number 38. It's a, it, we referenced it last, last episode. It's, it's her fictional uh, recreation of Rumi's life. It is never too late to ask yourself, am I ready to change the life I'm living? Am I ready to change within? Even if a single day in your life is the same as the day before, it surely is a pity. At every moment and with every new breath, one should be renewed and renewed again. There is only one way to be born into a new life, to die before death. Now, clearly, she, via, like, you know, this, this, this work is arguing that it is the individual that must change first, which doesn't challenge what either of you said. But it is interesting to think when we reflect upon this idea of subjectivist change, God, I hate to say the cliche, but if you really present yourself as the model for emulation of others, is that power? Is that, I mean, I guess as anarchists, we don't want to exert power, but is that something that could inspire? Yeah,
2: you know, for sure. And I mean, most anarchists I think would agree, regardless of what branch of anarchism that you follow, that the first thing anyone has to do is live and Live life as an anarchist. Now, it's not always possible, right? In fact, most of the times it's impossible in our modern society, but it's a lifestyle, right? It's a way of being before it's anything else, right? Or at least at the same time. I don't know too many people that disagree with that.
0: Keeping us in the modern world, we have another study here um, titled Varieties of Islamic Anarchism um, by Anthony uh, Fasella. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and they go through kind of like a brief, like, again, a historiography of potential more modern anarchists. So whereas Cron's looking at, you know, some of the 9th, 10th century, middle age uh folks, and even in my episode or in our episode prior where I focused on like Sufi poets, I was focusing on the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries. We're looking now more at the 20th, uh, the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries here. So these, these are Islamic or or Sufist anarchists that would have been developing their thoughts alongside the more celebrated Western thinkers. And so I think that's important. And, and one person that I was introduced to when I, when I read this article was a man named Even, uh, uh even, Ivan Agueli. And I'm not going to go through the whole bio. You can look up Ivan Agueli. Um, but there's a quote here that's super interesting by Ivan. It says, um, well, first, Ivan is the first anarchist to convert to Islam uh, all the way back in the 19th century, but this is what he had to say. We have already uh, received the solution of our generation, the union of individualism and solidarity. This union is called syndicalism and is the only possible form of cooperation between socialism and anarchy. And you may be wondering, wow, that's not really all that mind-blowing, and it doesn't even speak to spirituality. Why do you care about that, Jared? Well, here we have a Muslim anarchist in the 19th century echoing what syndicalism might be before the Spanish anarchists. That's why it's kind of like this idea, this precedent-setting thing. I I don't have all of the research to say this is the first person to ever speak about syndicalism. It's not. But it is interesting that these thoughts are spreading around the world before we actually see syndicalism in practice in Spain. What do you think of that?
2: I think it's interesting because we think like well, people didn't start thinking about how to reconcile anarchism and like socialism, Marxism until, you know, like the 20th century. Like absolutely. That's obviously nonsense. Like people have been thinking of this since the quote unquote beginning. Right. And and I think that goes uh, uh, kind of to uh, support a little bit of
1: uh, our arguments is that like e- like this person was thinking about and writing about this stuff. And then later did like the, the Spanish anarchism materialized this like. Uh, this syndicalist society, which is why I think is that's kind of interesting, is because it's like this. That wasn't the first time it, it's ever been talked about, or is it, it was ever a thing.
0: Another early, uh, again, anarchist slash Islamic thinker uh, of this era was a a person, and I'm uh, being vague here, named Isabel Eberhard, who honestly. Was way ahead of their time in challenging gender roles, gender normative society. Even our author here says that they uh, represented an early expression of what queer uh, might be during the time period. Anyway, one of the quotes uh, from Isabel uh, Eberhart that is super interesting. Again, as it's not just like we see like anarchism and sufism and Islam crossing over here, but also some other like major demarcations of what state and structure should be to even include, again, like gender normative, those types of things. So Eberhard had this to say, civilization, that great fraud of our times, has promised man that by complicating his existence, it would multiply his pleasures. Civilization has promised man freedom at the cost of giving up everything dear to him, which it arrogantly treated as lies and fantasies. The superfluous has become a necessity and luxuries are indispensable. Again, there's no direct correlation there where where Isabel is talking about um spirituality or mysticism but being spiritual and being mystic but then also having these thoughts shows the crossover with anarchism what do you think of that
2: yeah i mean i don't know if i have too much to add like her quote there is pretty much fire and i actually when i read that i highlighted that too and found tried to find that article so i could read it in full later on um Yeah, I mean there's obviously anarchist tendencies in there. Uh, And even like this author points to uh, early anarcho-primitivism being revealed in that work also. Yeah,
0: Yeah. but but this is a thinker. The reason I'm emphasizing this is it kind of challenges something we said at the beginning of the episode. This idea that that anarchism as we know it and how it's framed is like a Western invention. And even though technically Isabel Eberhardt is a Westerner, She went and lived like more of an Eastern lifestyle, more of a mystical lifestyle and challenged all of the norms of of that era and is clearly framing things at the exact same time. So this is like with contemporaries that we consider the fathers, and it's usually male fathers of anarchism, Emma Goldman accepted. Mm -hmm. I think think
1: that like uh, that quote kind of just shows like how even back then – how we still perpetuate this idea of like civilized modernity and that is like it helps people regardless of not if they wanted it or not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that that kind of supports that idea that we still do that even to this
0: day. Anarchism spread as as we're finding here in our study by uh, Fisella. Throughout the Middle East during that time period, through the Ottoman Empire, of course, which existed before before World War I, and then on into Egypt, and a lot of these communities, these more anarchist communities, who were recreating and publishing works of Bakunin and Proudhon and all of these other thinkers so that they could maybe either emulate or improve upon these ideas are so overlooked in the anarchist community. Why do you think that is?
2: because they don't fit the standard white great man of history of Western history narrative. I mean, that's clearly why, um, or yeah, I think it just like perpetuates itself because let's say someone today was discovering anarchism and they wanted to read more. You're going to start with like a Bakunin or a Proudhon or a Kropotkin or one of those, probably one of those three, right? That's where you're starting. And so you, have
0: we're guilty. No, yeah, for yeah, sure. Started, I the yeah. same thing.
2: Yeah. hundred percent. Um, I mean, even in the next, like, section of this paper, they're talking about Malatesta, who was in the late 19th century, who for sure is super important, that needs to be read, and, like, and so on. But usually people's entrance, uh entry points is, like, a Bakunin or something, you know?
0: Fussella goes on to say uh, later on in this this study, what ingredients have historically formed the basis for a potentially common language between Islam and anarchism, a language of resistance to oppression and skepticism to human authority, but also commitment to egalitarianism, universalism, and solidarity? That's a strong statement. Straight up. Yeah, I love that because I love thinking in the context of like discourses, right? So
2: what would be the discourse that joins the anarchist discourse? And the Islamic discourse right yeah that's fascinating to think about and there's so much overlap that yeah
0: and based on like Islam Islam's origins which I don't have time to teach nor did I in the last episode so I apologize for that but hopefully the audience knows a little bit like that it started as resistance to authority like mm. m- ever like so many belief systems and ideologies that that have come uh, before and after it but it 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 tackled things just a little bit differently and I think that's what um our author here is trying to to basically assert they go on to say uh the traditional islamic attitude towards actual government as opposed to ideal government is neatly summed up in the dictum that the government that governs the least governs the best the general discourse within the islamic world took a sharp turn towards the right um i.e. literalism and radical conservatism with the demise of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the British and U.S.-backed Saudis in Arabia as custodians of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Listeners might not be able to kind of like connect all of those historical dots right now, but I'll kind of help. What they're saying is even what we consider like dogmatic traditional Islam through the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries was not nearly as much so. As what we are usually led to believe, there was a lot of autonomy granted to various groups of people under the various uh, caliphs, whether it was Abbasid or Mamluk or later Ottoman leadership. Um, and 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 there wasn't a whole, there wasn't like the heavy hand of government as we now know and hate it today. I was about to say know and love, but we don't know and hate it today. That wasn't a thing. That all that all changes when the allies, i.e., the Western world, start to recreate the region after World War I And they say specifically creating this monarchy in Arabia, uh, run by the House of Saud, and then fracturing the Ottoman Empire up into all these cute little nation states that have obviously it's causing problems to this day. All of that is what is creating some of these governmental issues. And then the people that are being put in charge are using a more overt authoritarian version of Islam to legitimize the state. Thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think that this is we see this we see many examples of this throughout history it's not just islam in the middle east right christianity goes through the same thing with constantine and so on in fact we teach this when we do the ideologies course is that these belief structures didn't don't start out this way but they end up being used to coerce and control people but they very fundamentally that's not a fundamental part of their belief structure but they inevitably be become used to control so, I got a question. So,
1: do you think that's why, I, uh, like certain anarchists are so hesitant to, uh, even consider, uh, spiritual anarchism? Because it does lead to that, like, state building app,
2: like. Thing. Yeah, I think that it's a slippery slope, I yeah. guess, right? Like, yeah. if you have some experience of spiritual, like, say, we're talking about spirituality and you're like, yeah, I've been thinking about this too and then like all of a sudden like I find myself being a guru and then I have power, right? Like it's something that can be used to manipulate people really, really easily. I
0: mean ideologically speaking and we say this all the time. It's why we teach the the, the course called Ideologies and Isms, why we think the way we do. It's any one size fits all ideology is going to be problematic. Anyone, any one size of ideology that, that posits itself as the solution to all of humanity's ills, whether that is a religion or an economic system or a political system, whatever it is, <clears throat> it seeks power and authority. That's what it is. So I would,
2: I would ask the question, <clears throat> does every ideology necessarily do that, seek to become the dominant ideology? Is that
0: fundamental to an ideological belief system? You might have caught me here in like a little bit of a quandary because while I super want to say yes, one of my favorite kind of general ideologies is more of these circular like abstract thinking. Is that an actual dogmatic ideology? I don't know. But does it seek to be like all-encompassing? Yeah, it kind of does. I don't know that that makes it authoritarian or hierarchical. I think like we discuss this all the
2: time, right? Is that even ideological? Yes. I don't know. So when we
0: romanticize these, these, these other peoples that, that are these non Western peoples and they're very much more creative ways of looking at the world, are those ideologies at all? That's really a question we could probably ask, uh, you know, in in a different episode. Anyway, our, our study here, again, varieties of islamic ar- islamic art uh i can't even speak anymore islamic an- anarchism by anthony uh, facella goes on like through the history He even goes on to cite crone who we already just talked about and goes through some more more interesting things regarding these 9th 10th century uh muslims that we're actually going to skip i'm going to skip this part of his study cuz i've covered it and crone's covered it so we're going to kind of kind of jump ahead where uh anthony goes on to talk about uh now mid to late 20th century understandings of Islam's maybe intersection with um, anarchism. Um, And he cites, and this was a discovery for me, I freely admit it, as somebody that that kind of studies this region of the world quite a bit, this is something I'd never read. I'd heard of it, but was never a big fan of this person in practice, so didn't bother reading their work. But... Apparently, Libyan dictator slash elected official, whatever you want to believe, Gaddafi, had written um, a text called The Green Boat that Fasila here is citing as a pseudo-anarchist work. Uh, I still haven't dug all the way into it and all of the various nuances, but after like a brief kind of glossy look over it, it's super interesting and it had me questioning whether my perspective on this Libyan again, dictator slash elected official, whatever you want to believe, has been partially clouded by like the media and the news and the framing that we see here. But then I go through as a historian and research some of the atrocities and realize, God, man, it's it's hard. It's hard. And that's one of those things that's interesting to think about that it I mean, it just shocked me that that Gaddafi in a in a in a in a work that's supposed to be touching upon anarchism that gaddafi is cited i I don't know what you thought when you came across it i don't even know why i'm even talking about it it just it was such Uh, a shock to the system as i'm going through it i'm like Gaddafi? yeah same thing by the way it's called the green book you
2: said green boat but it's oh the the, sorry
0: the green boat is a book i assigned in some classes i my fault much different yeah it's a very different book book. it's actually a different book uh, it's a book about challenging systems but not these systems yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
2: same as you. Like I had never read the, read the book until you sent it to me, and then I glanced through it, and it actually reminded me a lot of Ochelon's democratic confederalism, which I think the I don't want to put those two men in the same bucket, but ideologically, the Green Book and Ochelon's work on that are very similar. And that's like,
0: so he obviously, so Gaddafi wrote this before he had really become like what he would become, right? Like, so this is one of his earlier works as he's kind of a rising political, uh, thinker at the time and before he actually is put in a position of power. And this now begs the freaking question. Um once you are in power once you are once you achieve whatever goals you have which a true anarchist would never want to achieve power but once you're you you are given some sort of authority or some sort of ability to course people to do things can you ever truly give that up can you ever get back to like your roots like once you once you're there once you've risen from the from the where's drake when i need him <laughs> I started
1: from the bottom <laughs> yeah
0: you start from the bottom like <laughs> yeah but once you're there like and and, and drake's a poor example because he's flat out <laughs> capitalist whatever not 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 anarchist by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> but once you're there like let's say you have these more pure thoughts shoot we could even use like the fidel castro example like amazing revolutionary dude revolutionary thinker really advocated for everybody somehow ends up a dictator following some of the same practices of the dictator he overthrew like how did that fucking happen like same thing here with Gaddafi. It was a shock to the system, if I'm honest with you, that this dude had these amazing philosophical, p- political, and even semi spiritual takes on social organization, and then he ends up being Gaddafi. Like,
1: uh, it, what's that saying? Is like, uh, my dad just always tells me this all the time. Is I'm is I'm blinking. Oh, it's like uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, or something right. like that. And I feel like that's kind of what that is. What what that had Came into is his philosophies might have been good, but when he started to get a little taste of that power, it was like, oh, okay, and he it just it went a, it went awry.
2: Also, like we have to talk about scale, right? Like if you're in your HOA, and like it's much easier to be like egalitarian and everyone's on the same page, and you live in the same neighborhood, and so on. But like when Castle rises to power or Gaddafi rises to power and all of a sudden you have to exist on a global capitalist scale that's a whole different like conversation right and i have to imagine it's pretty hard to hang on to your like anarchist or socialist or communalist tendencies when you're trying to be a leader in the global world like that's hard if you want to play the game anyways like not have the shit bombed out of you by the United States as yeah. an example
0: right <laughs> uh we go and we see more synthesis as this study kind of like again takes this more historical look at things where uh Facella begins to like talk more about like this late 70s early 80s punk movement that was also like heavily populated especially on the east coast of north america actually of all places by groups called like the Tacowcores uh or the Corps. excuse my pronunciation on that basically like this punk movement um, that did incorporate some Islamic thinking with what you would consider this traditional late 70s, early 80s anarchist punk movement. And you see this crossover. In fact, there's a there's an actual documentary – well, not documentary, film, a fictional a f- fictional novel called The Taco Corps, which kind of like frames this whole movement. And I don't know. I guess I I just again, these are things that were new to me as i began this like kind of study someone that that you know kind of you know really likes to talk and think about anti-establishment movements but also discuss like their crossovers that you wouldn't necessarily think they had crossovers with and like punk islam was just something that i never really had had come across so this idea right here what were your thoughts when you guys kind of came across this 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 takwa core movement or well at first again the novel and then the movement that kind of
2: Yeah, like you, I had never heard of this in my life, and it was super interesting to read about. Like, I was stoked when I was reading about this, like, wow no idea that this existed
0: i don't even want to like kind of just like describe it because you can just you can get on google and it i'll even spell it out for y'all or you know i won't i won't spell it out that'll take up too much time nick will put it in the show notes or uh, the episode notes here the taqua course and you can again check out the novel and then the film that was derived from it and and kind of look into that a little bit but again you have the talia uh, Al-Madi that springs forth which is like the it's that translates as the vanguard of the messiah which is kind of like this anarchist islamic organization they took some of the cues from another 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 organization we have a lot of respect for that we have done some study on, and that's MOVE um, of Philadelphia. Uh, Big fans there. But it's just so interesting that there is so much crossover that we discovered in in trying to either uh, validate or debunk this potential Sufi anarchist crossover, um, which I'm not sure. We're about to get into maybe some concluding thoughts on that. Is it even possible? But before I do that, um, there's a cool table in here um that that fasilla uses that 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 kind of helps frame things it's a table that discusses like individual society stance crossed over with economic stance and then you the reader get to decide whether these various islamic related or sufi related thinkers or organizations actually meet what would qualify as anarchist we'll probably try and put the table somewhere up um, but right now, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read a table to the listeners. That's just not it's not gonna go well if I do that. But we'll try and put the table up somewhere, perhaps in the show notes, so you can kind of see this this crossover that Facilla is able yeah, to I'll make. link
2: to this whole article. So yeah, it's a, a super good go article.
0: Um, there is a cool like quote that kind of finishes out like uh, Facilla's study here that I want to just read. It is uh, rightfully poetry. Um, those of you that listened to the last episode know how important poetry is within the Sufi uh, tradition. Your sickness is within you, though you do not realize, and your cure is within you, yet you do not see. You claim that you are nothing but a tiny entity, yet wrapped up inside of you is the greatest universe. You are the clear book, whose uh, through whose letters all that is secret is revealed and made known, so you have no need of anything outside of you. And that is a quote by Ali. Uh, the, the the Prophet himself's cousin.
2: So, what are your thoughts? So, he says here, too, I'm going to read this quote real fast, because he says, In conclusion, I'd simply like to, like, to cite a scholar, Muslim and anarchist, by the name of Seth um, Abd al-Aqim Karni, who wrote that, Islamic law does not provide sufficient basis for legitimizing coercive state power, and that the only alternative for Muslims seeking to implement Islam in the political realm is a turn towards a libertarian movement that does not use the state and its apparatuses for creating justice and imposing piety. So he seems, this author at least, seems to think that that there is some sort of reconciliation possible within Islam and anarchism. So I think that that's not Fisela's entire argument, but he sort of concludes the paper with that Quote So, I think that's interesting,
0: so we've gone through these sources, and you know the episode might be getting you know whatever we we don't want to deviate too far. I want Nick and dante's like we've we've learned about historical Sufism in one episode, and now this episode we've at least had three academics throw their weight behind some things now. What are your thoughts? I mean Sufism, anarchism is there? A way, I don't want to use the word reconciliation. Is there crossover? Can they coexist?
2: So, yes, 100% there's crossover. I don't think there's any denying that. My position is basically I don't think that you can be 100% an anarchist and be Sufi. And I don't think that you can be 100% Sufi and be an anarchist. However, that's okay. I think we need to be open to people having their own journey and finding their own belief structures that allow them to feel as free as they possibly can. And, like, who are we to judge them for that, right? So if you come across an anarchist, a self-proclaimed anarchist, and they're like, oh, I'm also a Sufi, like, who are you to be like, oh, you're not a real anarchist then, right? But, like, that's what people do all of the time. Yeah.
0: The anarchist would definitely respond that way. I don't believe it would happen, and vice versa. Maybe, I don't believe yeah. if that 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 person went to like other Sufi and were like, "I'm also an anarchist." That that then then you're not a true Sufi. I do that. And the reason I'm making that statement is because there is a certain again, there's there's gatekeeping in this Western notion of what anarchism is supposed to be, and I think that that that's a big part of it. Dante. Yeah, I I think
1: that um there is a way to a, a crossover between Sufi um and uh, anarchists, um, simply because I feel like if you have a a spirituality that leads you to like navigate the world in an anarchist way, that that I feel like there's crossover there. Like if, if you, if your spirituality is tied with like anarchist philosophy, I feel like, um, it, that, that is okay because you know, We we have different ways of looking at the world and viewing the world and the the truth that we find
2: in the world. And I feel like that's that's totally fine. So before we do leave, I want to finish with uh, maybe two questions. We'll see where it goes. So because we started this entire conversation, we started with Taoism on the possibility of there being room for spirituality within anarchism. I think maybe the term spirituality is where we got hung up potentially last time. And I know after we turned off the mics on one of the episodes, we ended up talking for like another hour on what that meant and how we feel about our children and like all kinds of weird things. But I think to go back to the other article in this discussion of mysticism and mysticism being something beyond science, beyond the observable world, why don't we focus on that as the question, is there room for mysticism within anarchism? Because... Like off the cuff, that doesn't seem like it's controversial, but it's hugely controversial in many anarchist circles, putting power and weight behind anything that is not empirical, basically. So let's I think I just want to conclude with like discussing that and getting your thoughts on that. So what do you guys think? Yeah, I i think
1: I think there is the reason why I, I'd like that you wanted to go back to that, because I feel like it gives us more um lenses to view the world. Right. It gives it gives us a more holistic view of how we can navigate the world and challenge systems, um, uh, state state systems. So I feel like. For people who say that mysticism cannot be uh, um, intertwined with anarchism, I think they're wrong, (laughs) I think they're
0: wrong. I would agree, uh, as I just kind of got done talking about. Any sort of one-size-fits-all way of looking at the world, which ironically anarchism has slowly become, at least in certain circles, is in and of itself authoritarian, uh, subjugating, and oppressive. And so when you look at the world only through, again, singular, singular lens of scientific empiricism and r- reason or whatever, we have to understand that is also contextually socialized and we are conditioned to frame it in those specific ways, which means we are not truly free, and thus the thoughts we are having that frame our absolute no to mysticism or our absolute yes to the observable world, that is, that, that is anything but anti-authoritarian. That is not anarchist. It is the absence of anarchism. So I would 100% argue that anarchism can, doesn't have to, but can include mysticism. Absolutely. It is one of the most arrogant things, uh, that humans have ever posited that we know how everything works. Like who the fuck are we? Like, and, and we never stop asking these questions, which in one way is kind of good. That's fine. It's how we lead to various scientific discoveries that we all know and love and enjoy today. I like running water and, po- and polio vaccines. I do like those things, but at the same time, it's also special kind of arrogance, almost, and Nick will do an episode on this in the future, anthropocentric, like, mm-hmm. this is it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Makes sense? Mm-hmm. I have
2: two points, I think. First off, and I tell my <clears> students this all the time when we're talking about different means of social change and stuff, like, people are so quick to make judgment of, like, well, when we're changing society, we don't want to use that as, like, a tool. And we just did this in the stateless class. If we're going to change society in the ways that, like, anarchists, since that's what we're talking about, want to change society, literally we're going to have to use every single tool at our disposal, like, including the kitchen sink. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's not like, we can't be like, oh, well, we're not including trans people in this movement. Like, I don't care who you are. If you're willing to go in the streets and fight to change the world, then you're on my side. Right? Now, I guess that's not totally true because, like, you know, the Proud Boys or whatever are not on my side. But... That leads me to my next point, like, I think in the Western world, let's say, we have the luxury of having these conversations, like, let's think of an example, like the people in Rojava right now that are being attacked by uh, Turkey, they aren't sitting in the trenches literally having these conversations, right, they're not like being mortared and being like, well, I don't know. Are you a mystic? I don't know if I want to fight with you or not. Like, that's not a conversation <laughs> you're having. You're fighting next to one another and it literally does not matter what that other person believes, what they look like, what the race is, what the nationality is. If they're pulling the trigger next to you at the same target, that's literally all that matters. So I just want to say like most of this like theoretical sparring that happens on the left right now is like such a luxury and a privilege that we don't, we don't really understand that, like, there's going, if the revolution I happens, know, I guess. But. That's nice. I was going to say <laughs>
0: embarrassment. It yeah. was an embarrassment.
2: It's not to say that we shouldn't be doing those things, but we have to recognize that in the moment. And I think have a little foresight to understand that... There will be a moment when none of these conversations matter if the revolution actually happens. None of this matters. It's which of your neighbors are going to be in the streets by your side. That's it. It doesn't matter if they're anarchists or socialists. It does not matter. In the course of any revolution, there becomes, it comes a time when everyone must put aside their differences and fight against the one foe, whoever or whatever that is. So...
0: And 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 to kind of back that, like Lada, when we were reading Lada, that since that's what you went back to, they were arguing essentially that some of their morality and ethical nature came from this Sufi background. And I'm gonna be blunt. Scientific empiricism has no morals or ethics. It has none. And we can see the dangers of that. We can see the dangers of that. It was scientific empiricism that led to Native American boarding schools and to uh uh the uh the movement with the uh the genetic changing like the, the oh, genetic, eugenics yeah eugenics movement holy shit I, I thought you were going to talk about the
2: holocaust I'm like you can't remember the holocaust <laughs> right now <laughs> well yeah. but
0: but yeah the eugenics movement yeah. Like the, the, that, that is just pure scientific yeah. empiricism or so they thought at the time but that's what I mean there is no morality there are no ethics there and yes Nick is 100% correct What they were doing in Germany in the 1930s, they thought was a pure attempt at scientific empiricism, and obviously it was corrupt science, but that's the point. When you have a one-size-fits-all understanding of the world, it's super easy to corrupt. So, anyway... What was your other question, or is that it? No, that was it. Okay. I, as I was talking through it, I made it into one question. So yeah, okay. that was it. I'm going to take us home. We're going back to my boy Rumi. We've read this poem before, but I don't care. I'm reading it again. It is my favorite poem. This is a Sufi poem that probably encompasses everything that we talked about in the last hour, hour and a half, in a couple of stanzas. Out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language. Even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Today, like every other day, we woke up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love do what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground.
2: Love it. I'll take us home. You can find us online at revolutionandideology.com. If you really are enjoying what we're doing... You can help us out and throw us a few of your hard-earned dollars uh, on Patreon. You can find our page at patreon.com slash revolutionandideology. We also have a YouTube channel, so you can subscribe to us there. We put every episode up on that channel, and we also have a bunch of other videos that we use in our classes and just other ones we've made for uh, entertainment purposes. Uh, yeah, that's it. So I'm Nick.
0: I'm Jared. I'm Dante.
2: Later.